Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 88, Things We're Not Sure About. It will no doubt come as a shock to any cheap astronomy listener to learn that we aren't always completely sure about some of the answers we provide in this podcast. Although, to be fair, some of the questions we're asked just don't have answers, and others might have an answer, it's just wildly impractical. For example, Dear Cheap Astronomy, Can we terraform Venus? Well, maybe, though it would require some very advanced planetary engineering and huge amounts of energy and money. And whether you could then keep Venus terraformed without ongoing engineering interventions, is doubtful, although you could probably say the same for Mars terraforming plans. The first issue you have to deal with is Venus's atmosphere, which is very dense and crazy hot because it's primarily CO2. Here, there are several options. The first being chemistry, where we could add hydrogen to the CO2 to produce graphite, essentially solid carbon, and water. This endeavour would require 40 quintillion kilograms of hydrogen, which you'd probably need to ship from Jupiter, and apparently you'd also need a moderate amount of aerosolized iron to make the reaction happen, which is proposed to be mined from Mercury and then aerosolized throughout Venus's atmosphere somehow. An easier and less science fiction-y alternative might be to bury all the CO2 using CO2 sequestration techniques, which may already be achievable on a small scale on Earth using current technologies. Except it's expensive, and the outcome would just be global benefit rather than individual or national benefit. So for now, we're just watching all the forests burn. Anyhow, just dealing with the atmosphere doesn't deal with the issue that Venus receives around twice as much solar flux as the Earth does. The best solution to deal with that is some kind of solar shade. Ideally, a structure with four times the diameter of Venus sitting at the Sun-Venus-Lagrange point 1. As well as shading Venus, this would also help reduce the solar wind pressure which may otherwise blow away any terraformed atmosphere you establish. Trouble is, if your solar shade is deflecting solar wind, as well as photons, it will eventually get pushed out of position. So the shade might need louvers to let some wind particles and photons through at particular angles. A whole different idea is to start colonising Venus with lots of cloud cities that have reflective surfaces. And those cities could be built from carbon extracted from the atmosphere, which would mean the first stages of colonisation were contributing to the latest stages of colonisation, since building the cities would both shade the planet and thin the atmosphere. A whole different approach is that you first cool the atmosphere right down with extreme shading so as to freeze all the CO2 out into a solid. And then you just launch that solid CO2 off the planet, 
perhaps shipping it to Mars to help with the terraforming efforts there. Also, if we launched big chunks of frozen CO2 at escape velocity, all in the same angular direction, we could increase the spin of the planet. Freezing out the dense CO2 atmosphere would form an ice crust several hundred metres thick, so you would have a substantial amount of mass to work with. Alternatively, we could apply that same idea in reverse, by bombarding Venus with objects, aligning the trajectories of those bombarding objects so as to increase Venus's spin rate. Such heavy sustained bombardment would thin the CO2 atmosphere by just blowing a lot of it into space, and if you ensured the bombarding objects were primarily water ice, perhaps harvested from the outer solar system, you would also be adding water to Venus's surface. But all that said, there is some debate about whether we do actually want to spin Venus faster. Once you've got rid of most of the CO2 and have established water oceans, the sunlit side will probably always be covered with high albedo clouds, which will cool the lit side of the planet, and the dark side will be cool anyway, because it's dark. So, spinning Venus faster may end up raising the average surface temperature. Nonetheless, a key advantage of spinning up Venus is that you might give it a magnetosphere, like Earth's, and hence protect the newly terraformed atmosphere from being blown away by the solar wind, assuming the giant louvered sunshade isn't enough. Alternatively, if we didn't want to spin Venus faster, and the sunshade still wasn't enough, we could deploy refrigerated superconducting rings. Or we could position a giant magnetic dipole at the L1 Lagrange point, either method producing an effective artificial magnetosphere. Heck, with this sort of thinking, it's a wonder we haven't moved in already. This is the middle bit. So yep, it's possible, just wildly impractical. If someone ever did a podcast called Implausible Engineering, this might make a good episode. Although it is a bit implausible that anyone would do a podcast called Implausible Engineering. I mean, come on. But returning to the theme about things we're not really sure about, how's this one? Dear Cheap Astronomy, please tell us more about standard candles. As we've discussed before on Cheap Astronomy, our understanding of the universe is a bitsy construction where we know what some bits are, but we don't know what other bits are, although we are pretty sure we need those other bits. The bits that we do know about only make up about 5% of all the bits. In other words, 95% of the universe is composed of dark bits. Anyway, if you have a standard candle that's always of a certain brightness, then you can determine whether it's close or distant based on whether it's bright or dim. However, a fundamental problem with astronomical standard candles is that the further away they are, the further back in time they were when the signals you receive about them were first emitted. For example, it's subsequently become clear that Edwin Hubble's measurements, which established a linear relationship between distance and redshift, using Cepheid variables as standard candles, were actually way off. 
We've subsequently determined that nearby Cepheid variables are population 1 stars, that is, recent generation stars, while distant Cepheid variables are population 2 stars, that is, older generation stars with lower metallicity. Those lower metallicity population 2 stars were brighter than the standard that Hubble had assumed, and hence were actually a lot further away than Hubble assumed. The recalibration of Hubble's measurements resulted in a doubling of the estimated distances of many galaxies, as well as doubling the estimated size of our own galaxy. In a similar vein, there is currently some doubt about our measurements of the universe's expansion rate based on data about Type 1a supernovae. Type 1a supernovae are assumed to be standard candles, so the dimmer they are, the further away they are, and we can also do with them what Hubble did with Cepheid variables and measure both their distance and their redshift. So further away Type 1a supernovae are more redshifted than close ones, indicating those distant ones are moving away from us faster than the close ones, and hence demonstrating the universe is expanding. Furthermore, the speed variations between distant Type 1As from the early universe and close Type 1As from the recent universe also indicate the universe's expansion has been accelerating over time. As was the case with the Cepheid variable observations, if it turns out that Type 1A supernovae aren't quite the standard candles we thought they were, perhaps because Type 1As from the early universe explode a bit differently from how Type 1As in the more recent universe do, then it will mean our distance measurements are a bit out, but it's not likely that this would undermine the fundamental conclusion of accelerating expansion. We just gain a more precise measure of the expansion rate, which these days we call the Hubble parameter. Nonetheless, we are apparently in the midst of a crisis in cosmology where different methods used to measure the Hubble parameter are delivering different results. So, for example, you can estimate the rate of universal expansion by observing the cosmic microwave background against the current distribution of galaxies. However, this gives you a slower expansion rate than the standard candle measurements do. We're not currently sure whether we are just dealing with a lack of precision in these different measurements or whether there is something fundamentally wrong with the assumptions underlying the calculations, meaning our theoretical schema about the universe could be fundamentally wrong. Whether this is really a crisis, or just scientific business as usual, is largely a matter of perspective. Not knowing everything is what keeps scientists in business. One way to deal with the apparent crisis is to find other methods of measuring distances and expansion rates. For example, thanks to gravitational wave astronomy, we now have standard sirens, where the merging of binary neutron stars should create a standard chirp signal that attenuates with distance, and you can calibrate that distance by also observing the merging binary through electromagnetic astronomy, that is, normal astronomy, if there really is such a thing as normal astronomy. This is the end bit. So, there you go. There's lots of stuff we're not sure about. Although there's things that no one is sure about either. 
Of course, there's probably lots of expert people who could explain why no one is sure about those things in a far more sophisticated way than we could, although we're not really sure about that either. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you're not sure if you do, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll fill in the gaps for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlick, Cheap Astronomy.